1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you would stand with me as I read verse 19 through verse 22. And let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Father, we come, Lord, asking for light and understanding. We come, O Lord, as Your children, asking that You would in Christ instruct us and purify us. Lord, correct any wrong thinking, correct any wrong living habits. Lord, help us to eat and devour these words of Yours. Though Paul penned them, Lord, they come from You. They are inspired from You. And let us live by these words. Lord, help us as a body and as a people, as families, growing grace. Lord, according to what we read and understand and learn here this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, beloved, verse 19 and following. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I have quite a, a puritanical title to this morning's message for you. I didn't put it in the bulletin or didn't send it to Chuck for him to put it in the bulletin, but really and truly the the title is this, Quenching the Spirit, Biblical Examples of Christ Confronting and Correcting New Testament Churches That Were Guilty of Prolonged Neglect of Grace. That's a little bit too long to put in the bulletin. But it does convey what we're going to address or what I am planning to address with you this morning as we continue to look at this injunction to stop quenching the Spirit. And that's what Paul says, in, that's what Paul wrote in the literal Greek. The Greek is stop quenching the Spirit. The reason Paul could write stop quenching the Spirit is this. We all are guilty of quenching the Spirit. We all at various times throughout the week quench the Spirit. By our thoughts, by the things we think, by the things we dwell on, by the things we choose to talk about, and by the practices we keep. And we need to be aware of it, don't we? We need to be mindful of it. If we're going to correct it, if we're going to address it, if we're not going to quench the Spirit, if we're going to walk in obedience, we at least need to have a mental awareness of what we're doing. We at least need, brothers and sisters, to have a sincere, genuine, if you will, view of ourselves. The natural man loves to be puffed up. He loves to be proud of his own accomplishments or her own accomplishments. The natural man loves being pampered. Loves receiving the accolades for the things that we do. And yet here's an injunction by the Apostle Paul to help bring us down to that level of grace where we need to be so that we're constantly having our eyes and attention focused upon the One who has saved us and is saving us and will continue to save us so that we cling tightly to Him and not ourselves. That's the purpose. I ask you a question as we address this idea of quenching the Spirit and Paul using this metaphor of fire, well, let's ask this question in order to implant it deeply into our own consciences so that we might dwell on it not only now but later. And that question is this, are you, beloved, each one of us here, as individuals, as families, as a group, are you a steady stream of water quenching the Spirit? Are you a gentle breeze in the church of Jesus Christ? 
That's really the question, isn't it? Are you water in this metaphor? Water being that agent that quenches the spirit. That dampens that enthusiasm, that spiritual work. That nurturing, that spiritual nurturing that's taking place. Are you even a a drip or drop, a little steady stream that's dampening that work of the Spirit? Are you a breeze feeding the fire? Helping and aiding the work of the Spirit as it as it, as it moves about in the body, in individuals and in homes and in the total congregation. That's the question. See, where there is a work of God, beloved, there will be a work of Satan. Where God is working to build, to edify, to grow up. Satan is there to douse and extinguish and render useless the work of God. Where there is genuine enthusiasm, spiritual joy, where there is true spiritual edification and growth happening in Jesus Christ. Satan will be there. He is, brothers and sisters, the great quencher of God's work. Let me describe him to you as the realist. The level-headed one. Have you ever heard those terms? Have you ever used those terms? Well, I'm just being real. I'm just being level-headed. You're not thinking clearly. Well, see, that was the argument that Satan used in Genesis 3. When he went to Eve and says, I mean, has God said this, really? Come on, be real. Come on, you think God is going to give you all of this? You think God wants you to be like Him? All Satan needed to do in order to bring that quenching fire of the Spirit in her life and in Adam's life was to do what? Plant doubt. That's all he needed to do. All he needed to do was plant that seed of doubt in order for that seed to to, to grow immediately into the act of obedience to eat what God told him not to eat. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 16 Paul tells us as we take up the armor of God that we are to take up the shield of faith. Because the shield of faith is the instrument by which we extinguish the fiery darts of what? Of who? The evil one. Satan is the great an ultimate quencher of the fire of God. And the question is, beloved, how He is able to use us in His quenching of that fire. Think about Paul's antagonizers in Thessalonica. How did Satan wish to extinguish the the, the, the promotion of the gospel, how was Satan going to extinguish this the joy and enthusiasm of Jesus Christ, His saving mercies and graces that was beginning to take root in a very pagan place and to spread abroad? How was, how was Satan going to quench that holy fire? He sent Paul, he sent antagonizers of the Apostle Paul. He sent people who hated Paul. He sent those who hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we find in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, what did they do? They went there in order to extinguish the fire of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit by saying, you know, Paul's really a fake. He's not who you think he is. 
These antagonizers were being used by Satan to quench the Holy Spirit by again inserting what? Doubt. Doubt. You can't trust Paul. If you can't trust him, if he's an unreasonable man, if he's a man of of, of greed and, and all of this ill character, can you believe his message? That's what was going on. That's what was happening here. And you can see that they were hoping by sending these antagonizers and persecutors of the church that the goal would be to quench the fire of the Spirit there. To, to see the work of God in Christ dampened and put out by sowing all of this doubt and by sowing all of this discord, by sowing all of these hard times and persecution because they were being persecuted. They were having and undergoing hard times. Paul uses this metaphor, right? Do not quench the Spirit. What's the purpose of the metaphor? Paul uses this particular metaphor in order to add weight to these final, this final list of exhortations and warnings that, he's, that he gives to the church. He's wanting them to be mindful of this, these duties and these responsibilities that we are to be doing. And if we're not doing them, we're to think about the, the metaphor of quenching the Spirit. And this metaphor of fires to help us develop a sensitivity, if you will, towards our spiritual duties and activities. That we would be diligent in doing good works. That work that He has begun in us, right? A work that's been, that has been started. And we're to maintain it and keep it going. See, Paul wants us to develop a sensitivity to our development as Christians. Our training in righteousness, knowing that we have a long way to go, each and every one of us. No matter our age, and when I say age, I mean our age in Christ. Look at the things you have forgotten in your time as a Christian. Look at the things you have forgotten in the Lord. You don't even remember everything you've learned. Some of it is due to our own frailties in the flesh. I mean, us physical bodies are weak. Our minds aren't as sharp as they used to be, if you will. But nevertheless, how much of that, how much of what we have forgotten is just due to neglect? Due to a lack of practice. Due to a lack of a heart and hunger and a desire for our Lord. How much of it? I know we have a hard time answering a question like that, but it's something we ought to ponder. That's what Paul is doing here. It's vital that what work has been, has been started in us, beloved, we take it ourselves in our own role to completion. And all the while, he's the one bringing about Bringing that work up to completion in us. Because Paul knows it's a hard work. It's a hard work. It's a hard work to be a Christian. In any generation. It's a hard work to grow up as a young woman as a Christian. It's a hard work to grow up as a young man. As a Christian young man, it's a hard work raising a Christian family. It's a hard work developing and maintaining a Christian testimony and confession and influence in the community. It is hard work, beloved, and we are not to grow weary in doing good, and we don't grow weary when we are mindful and sincere about not quenching the Spirit. How many times have we fallen into the trap of the modern day church growth movement? Numbers dictate our spiritual condition. Falling into that mindset of revivalism. 
falling into that mindset that if somebody cries buckets of tears, they must be truly converted. Not whether they maintain their Christian testimony, not whether they do what is righteous, not whether they have a hunger and thirst to read and memorize and the Word of God and to worship the Lord in purity and truth, but just that they are, quote, sensitive people. That's not biblical. There are all kinds of biblical directives about not living on your emotions. We should neglect the idea of the flash in the pan reality and recognize that what is truly developed and maintained by the Spirit in the church, in God's people, collectively, as a whole and corporately, is very hard and difficult. Why do you think the Christian life is described in terms of a soldier? A soldier that trains and prepares for battle. A soldier that must develop a mindset that he can lose his life anytime he steps onto that battlefield in that in that military regalia. Anytime he steps up to face the enemy, it could be his last moment. The farmer. The farmer lives in this state of weakness. Puts his seed in the ground. It's dependent upon the content of the soil. That's dependent upon the content of the moisture falling out of the sky. Which is dependent upon the weather being conducive to the harvest. Which is dependent upon having the laborers do it. All of these things. The farmer is in this anxious state of depending and resting in God to bring about the harvest. Hard work. It's not Paul's intention, brothers and sisters, when he uses this metaphor to convey the idea that somehow we can squash, extinguish, or put out God's fire. Now, metaphors are only designed to give a picture. God is immutable. God is unchangeable. And God is not changed by any of our activities, whether they be disobedience or obedience. Okay? God, the, the purpose of the metaphor is to train us. It's to train our thinking. God stands fixed and firm and He's not moved all over the place. You do not in one day, you know, God is not happy one minute with you and then the next minute He's sad and the next minute He's happy and the next minute He's... And God's not like us. God is unchangeable in all His ways. He loves you with a firm and fixed love. That doesn't change. But how does God in the Spirit and the Apostles train us to think in ways where we can be what we've been called to be in Jesus? Well, He's talking to us in baby language. He's speaking to us in word pictures. That's one of the things I truly enjoy when I read John Calvin. John Calvin has a firm grasp and a consistent understanding of human depravity. I think more, I think better than most theologians I read. He's consistent in helping us understand that God's not moved to the right or to the left by our actions. He's fixed and firm, and yet He writes in a way that we might be affected in a a sense that we would be obedient. That we would love to be obedient. I mean, think about the idea of quenching the Spirit. See, he's trying to develop our sensitivities. You mean, what if I were guilty of helping this body be useless? Because it's a corporate setting here. I don't want you to walk away and just ponder this individually, which is a point to a point. But Paul is writing collectively. This is a corporate metaphor to be used in the body. We are not as a body, as a church, to quench the fire of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul wants to enforce 
on us the duties, our spiritual duties, by giving us this strong warning. Don't quench the Spirit. Or stop quenching the Spirit. I could have gone, brothers and sisters, and as this sermon is geared toward helping us understand what it looks like to quench the Spirit, I thought about going to Genesis 3. I thought about going to Genesis 6. I thought about going to Genesis 11. You have the fall. You have the flood. You have the Tower of Babel. And address and deal with how the Spirit there was quenched in the fall of man, in the ruin of man, and in the spread of, of, of the nations. I could have gone to the exiles. I could have gone to the exiles. Those taken into Babylon and those coming back. I could have dealt with them. I could have gone to Acts chapter 7 and dealt precisely and particularly with with Stephen's apologetic and how he describes the long list of disobedience of Israel to God. Quenching the Spirit. But beloved, I've decided to go to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. As our, as the, as, the, as the meat of our text this morning, I wish to address the seven churches of Asia Minor and use them as an example of what it looks like when men and women, when church members quench the Holy Spirit. Before we turn there, in each one of those situations, in each one of those situations, and let me remind you that this is uh, the portion of Scripture that describes for us that Jesus walks among His candlesticks. He walks among the church. He, what does He do as He walks among the church? He, es- he, he estimates. He discerns. He teaches. He nurtures. He warns. He disciplines. He does all of those things that we need done to us as spiritual children in order to see us come to maturity. I'm going to tell you this right now. No child that grows up That has a some self discipline, some aspect of honor and integrity, some aspect of understanding authority. That didn't grow up with some discipline. You don't get those things without discipline, and maybe the parents does it. Maybe the parents can't take honor for that discipline. Maybe it was the military. Maybe it was a marriage. But somehow, somewhere, some way, those people learned those things through hardships and difficulties, through a time of soul wrenching and 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 a soul a, a darkness that forces them to do what? Look outside of themselves for answers. And this is what Christ is doing when he walks among the candlesticks. He's doing a spiritual assessment of where these churches are. And what he finds, he's not pleased with most of them. Six out of the seven churches are warned and rebuked. And if they don't comply with Christ, the head of the church, he threatens to take away their spirit and influence no longer to be made useful for the kingdom of heaven. Every one, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 22, all end with a statement regarding the Holy Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. So let's turn there. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 and let's begin our investigation into what quenching the Spirit looks like in order that... 
for us to be aware of it, for us to repent of it if we see it in ourselves or if we see it in this body, so that we might deal with it and be pleasing to the Lord of glory and edifying to each other. The first church we have to deal with is Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. And, and in this, I want to deal with the idea of religiosity. Religiosity. And what I mean by this religiosity is the idea that we may be guilty of quenching the Spirit by simply going through the religious motion without a heart to glorify God, to edify the body, without enthusiasm, without joy, without an eye toward the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Notice... Notice what Christ says about the church. Verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. They had settled doctrine. They had their eye on the right people and the wrong people. They had an eye toward false teachers. They had an eye they could sniff out false doctrine. And yet they were still not pleasing to the Lord. They had all of the right religiosity about them. They had all of the right outward appearance, didn't they? But going through the motions, brothers and sisters, is not enough, is it? That's what this church teaches us. The church at Ephesus teaches us that we must have something more than an outward expression of truth or even justice. Even when we hold court and we're able to condemn false teaching and condemn false teachers, if we don't have a heart for that truth, we're guilty, aren't we, of quenching the Spirit Hearts, brothers and sisters, of joy and gladness and thanksgiving. Just hold, don't turn there, let me do it. I mean, we go back to Thessalonians and we look at what Paul has already stated in in the passage. You know, um, notice, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I promise you this, I promise you this, you can't maintain that without a heart of joy. You can't. If you're not ready and prepared to rejoice in the Lord. Remember what we said about rejoicing? It's not something you do privately. It's something you do outwardly. Thank God I rejoice. It's something we do visibly. It's obvious. It's something people can see and notice and recognize about us. See, Ephesus lost the joy of the Holy Spirit. Ephesus lost the enthusiasm. Oh, they were going through the motions and they thought by doing that, they were okay. And yet, here the Lord Jesus who walks among the candlesticks, among His church, and what does He do? He surveys them and finds them lacking and wanting. He says, look, you are guilty. And not in some minor point. If you don't correct it and repent and come back to Me you don't do the works of joy and rejoicing if you don't do the works inwardly that you did when you were saved I'll just remove the church 
Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Listen, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any, uh, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice, highlight, practice these things. Why? And the God of peace will be with you. Yeah. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11 through 15. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Not busy at work but busy bodies. Now such persons are commanded and encouraged in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed And do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You know what Paul is saying there in the next epistle? In in, in the second epistle of Thessalonians, what he's saying is, listen, when you find people that will not obey the Lord Jesus Christ, their professing brothers and sisters, he said, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. They ought to be ashamed. There's nothing... Good about it. There's nothing honorable in it. There's nothing honorable, good. There's nothing, there's not, there, there's no reason to highlight and to hold that person up as spiritual when they are failing, not only uh, when they are failing to reform the inward and outward. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would not be guilty of formalism or religiosity. Don't come to church to go through the motions. Come to church to worship the living God in Christ. Come to church to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come to church to have your heart corrected, changed, transformed. Come to church to encourage one another. Edify one another. Come to church to be a gentle breeze to the fire of the Holy Spirit. Second church, Smyrna. Look there with me. Verse 9, And I know your tribulation. And they were undergoing difficulty. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. How do they quench the Spirit here? Well, notice the direction. Notice what the Lord Jesus, the great counselor, tells them in verse 10. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer for that you will be Tested. Tested. We want to be mindful, brothers and sisters, of an ungodly and unholy fear. Why? Because ungodly fear, that is not the fear of God that the Bible promotes, but the ungodly kind of fear. The ungodly kind of fear leads to despondency. It leads to inactivity, you see. And despondency, fear, this ungodly fear and despondency is a quencher of the Spirit. Fear is a very powerful emotion, brothers and sisters. It excites our flesh. 
fear, this ungodly fear and despondency is an excitement of our fallen nature. Why is that? Because it excites us to... um, to make our own way. It excites us to provide for ourselves in our own insecurity and not trust in God. You become afraid and you abandon biblical law and principles and you do it your way because you know best. That's ungodly. We are not to trust in our own understanding, the Scripture says. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We're not to take matters into our own hands because we become fearful and that fear replaces faith, saving faith, and that quenches the Spirit. Listen to Proverbs 3, verse, Proverbs 3, 3 through 8. It says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, the Lord Jesus tells them the way out in the tribulation. What's the way out of the test? Death. Death. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. That's the way out. How do you pass the test? How were they to pass the test at the church of Smyrna? How were they to pass it? By remaining faithful unto death. First Thessalonians 5 verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, we're not to lean to our own understandings. We're not trying to figure things out in our own flesh, but we are to submit and give ourselves to the mind of the Spirit and wrote the Scripture to the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the will of God, and we are to forsake our own understanding. You guess what? Some things you don't know and understand fully. God is not obligated to dot all your I's and cross all your T's. But what He does tell you is this. I will give you the crown of life. I will bless you. I will give you far more than you can imagine. And listen, brothers and sisters, far more than we deserve. Amen? Always far more than we deserve. Look at the third church, Pergamum. The third church, there is this indifference, this spiritual lethargy prominent in this church. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because because you have there, that is in the church, some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you have also some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And I'll stop there. This spiritual indifference, brothers and sisters, somehow this church and in some way had become indifferent to the various teachings that had entered into the church. Now, why why does indifference 
quench the spirit. Well, in this case, it ought to be clear it is false teaching and doctrine. But what if you're indifferent about the work of the spirit in general? Well, you know, whatever. Instead of having a mindset of we are all in this together, we're all working toward one goal and one purpose, which is to glorify God, to be molded and shaped into this glorious image, to have all the rough edges in my life, and there are many sanded home, chiseled off. I'm indifferent. There was a lack here of watching over their own hearts. See, they didn't think it was that important. Some could hold to this teaching and others hold to another teaching. They did not understand in this indifference that they were cluttering up and blocking the path to true happiness and joy as a body. Because remember, what does the Lord do in Pergamon? The whole church is involved. Some of you have fallen into this, and some of you are you know, not, but then some of you are even doing this. You see the members of one another, don't we? We see the body uh, being represented here. There are a variety of ways a church can quench the Spirit, not all in the same way. Yet they all do quench the Spirit in some way and in some fashion. They all compromise, if you will, the issues of life. For example, let me give you the, 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 the point that's being made there in verse 14 when he talks about the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. I mean, it was to live by your carnal desires. You know, it was to live by the flesh, the appetites, if you will. A church that did not govern the appetites of its membership and congregation, understanding that the Holy Spirit governs our appetites, the things we want out of life. And they were falling into rank sin of immorality because they couldn't govern their own appetites. Proverbs 4, verse 18 through 23. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Vigilance. Govern your appetites. Learn that if you don't govern a certain aspect of your own appetites where it could lead you. I'm sure that this church didn't start off thinking they were going to be as rank and immoral as they had turned out. They probably started off as very small, very subtle. Little sins lead to bigger sins. It's not static. If you don't govern yourselves, brothers and sisters, you're on this path of of becoming more and more rank and ungodly in your life. There's a path represented here. Proverbs 4 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now what that word means there in the Hebrew, the springs of life, is that the heart determines the boundaries of your life. The word issue there means boundary marker, boundary, like a road or a fence. From the heart shoots forth boundaries. And if you don't have those boundaries, whatever's in your heart is dictating the direction of your life and where you're going. Watch over your heart because it's going to determine how you live. What about the church in Thyatira? 
I know your deeds, verse 19, your love, faith, service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than the first, or greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may act, or they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. And I'm just going to stop there. This is that quenching of the spirit with ungodly Tolerance, ungodly tolerance. Some things should not be tolerated in church. You agree? I mean, the church is not a place in a hodgepodge of a collection of ideas and practices and hobbies that everybody ought to be happy about. The head of the church judges the church, doesn't he? He searches out the church. And what did he say in verse 23? He says, I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the the minds and the hearts. I'm the one who gives to each one according to your deeds. I'm the rewarder, whether good or evil. Here the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, warns the church to hold fast to the truth and to the Word of God and its practices. Because God comes and judges the church. He comes and judges her practices. He comes and judges the church inward and outwardly. Brothers and sisters, that alone ought to stir us up to a responsibility to not quench the Spirit. Amen. It should. It should. Our blessed Lord walks in our midst. He hears our speech. He knows the heart that that, that speech springs from. And we can't fool Him. He knows how happy you are to worship Him and how happy you are not. He knows when we want to be somewhere else. He knows when we are just going through the motions or when we are truly sincere. We may be weighed down. We may not even look like it. But He knows. He knows. I'm not talking about outward facades. I'm talking about you can be sitting there and you may be like the man in the temple that beats his chest and he says, Oh God, I am not worthy. We may look at that man and go, Well, that's a pitiful creature. But God loves him and accepts him. There's all kinds of examples in the Bible, beloved, of misperceptions. And we're going to get into some of them. Look at the church at Sardis, our fifth church. Notice the spiritual slumber and hypocrisy there in Sardis. And think about how that has quenched the Spirit. Verse 1, he says, He who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name... That you are alive, but you are dead. Think about perceptions. You look alive, but you're not. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. And therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night. And I will not, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This spiritual negligence and this slumbering, this hypocrisy that you see oh they had this reputation of looking alive but in God's estimation in the estimation of Christ they were not alive they were dying they were dwindling spiritually 
They were in this spiritual uh, drowsiness, if you will. How did they get there? How did they get there? Well, what does the text tell us? Look at verse 3. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. How did they get to a place where they look alive, but they're not? They didn't continue in the means of grace. They quenched the Holy Spirit for so long that they had become almost a dead church. They quit feasting upon the means of grace and faith and hope and truth. They quit looking at themselves. They quit, they quit judging themselves before the throne of grace. They had a lying face, if you will. They looked spiritual. They looked alive. They had this name that you are alive, but you are dead. And in fact, Christ even says, wake up. Wake up. Oh, brothers and sisters, are we this hypocrisy and this spiritual negligence? Do you... Have you come to the place, brothers and sisters, that you forget that the means of grace are the means of salvation? That Christ is speaking to you in these graces. That Christ is loving you. He's hugging on you. He's kissing on you. He's bringing you along the difficult times, the tests that He's given you. All of these things that are so needed to be cultivated inward, inwardly and outwardly. He is working in your midst. But yet, how often do we neglect the very things that gives us the joy, the happiness, the enthusiasm we truly seek after. We've got to move quickly. And if we're going to finish this morning, the church of Laodicea, I'm going to skip Philadelphia to the end because that's the positive, one positive church that we can look at as an example. The church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm just going to stop there. Oh, brothers and sisters, we all know, don't we, how pride stifles and quenches the Holy Spirit work in us and in the church arrogance haughtiness oh I mean you think you're something you think you've built this place you think you've done all of this you think your growth is because you have memorized a hundred passages of scripture you think you are the counselor to all your brothers and sisters because you are intellectual or because you have gone through all these experiences and none of that is the case you may be every bit of that but without the blessing of Christ without Christ in you that's nothing Nothing. A proudness, a, a haughtiness, an arrogance, a contempt for others is what it breeds. I don't need the means of grace like you need it. I don't need the Word of God as much as you need it. I don't need to pray as much as you need to pray. I don't need to sing praise songs as much as you need to sing them. I'm on a different level. They had a twisted perception of their own spirituality. Verse 17. But the reality was they were nothing in God's sight. God's children quenched the Spirit 
Brothers and sisters, when they don't submit to God's chastening love and discipline. Think about Hebrews 12. God says, I chasten whom I love. And if you are a true son and daughter, I'm going to chasten you. If I don't chasten you, you're not a son and daughter. But all I chasten, I chasten for the, fact, for the purpose of righteousness and holiness. Let's look at the church in Philadelphia and end on a positive word here. Notice the characteristics of the church at Philadelphia. <clears throat> he who is holy, verse 7, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. I will make them know that I have loved you because you have kept my word. Uh, kept the word of my perseverance I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth I am coming quickly hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown he who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down from heaven from my God and my new name just the characteristics here number 1 they showed their that they were strong in Christ they were not a, they weren't strong in themselves they were weak people they were a weak church but they didn't see their strength in themselves. They saw their strength in Christ and what Christ was bringing to them as the people of God. They were strong in the Word. They were strong in the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is highlighted. Patience being a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, they were weak. Think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, or 2 Corinthians 13. Paul goes through a whole litany of of uh, uh, descriptions of how weak he is in the, in the flesh and speech. He goes, yeah, I, I don't speak well. Yeah, I, I don't do all these things like these other guys do. Well, I don't, I'm not like them, but I can tell you what I do, what I am. He says, I am knowledgeable in the Lord. I, I know Christ. And He's called me. And He's even given me a thorn in my flesh to buffet me even more. To teach me humility so that I might not be arrogant in my own strength. That's the church in Philadelphia here. Their weaknesses were opportunities to glorify God. To submit to His will, to highlight His power, not their goodness. Oh, brothers and sisters, I could say more, but let me conclude. I think it's clear we have an adversary who, see, who, who, who is determined to use us and anyone else to douse and dampen the fire of the Holy Spirit in the church. The question is going to be, how will he, if he's able to use you, to do so? How? Motions? Will He excite you to anger? Will He give you a false sense of your own righteousness? Will He allow you to embrace a false teaching? Will He allow you to have sensitivity for a false teacher? Will He cause you to sit in judgment of your brothers and sisters of their spirituality? Hmm? See, there are a number of ways that Satan can use us to dampen the Holy Spirit. 
the work. And we ought to be mindful of it. And we ought to fight against it. And we ought to end with this, brothers and sisters. Pray that that we would take the shield of faith and we would fight and quench the fiery darts of the evil one as they're shot at us. And that we would use the scriptures, not our own emotions, not our own mindsets, but the scriptures to be our path and our guide and our encouragement as we seek to be a gentle breeze in the church of Jesus Christ, fanning the flame of what God has so graciously and lovingly started in us. Let's pray.